Hello, I'm Richard Moore, and you're welcome to the third season of What About You? In this series, I'm talking to people who have been wrongly accused. In 1979, during the conflict in Northern Ireland, a British soldier, Stephen Kirby, was shot dead on the streets of Derry. Shortly afterwards, Jerry Kelly, Michael Toner, Stephen Crumleys, and Jerry McGowan were arrested and charged with the murder, a crime that they clearly didn't commit. During their trial, the so-called Derry Four fled the Republic of Ireland and went on the run for 20 years, returning in 1998 for their acquittal. The science statement was enough to put you away back then. Simple as that. Trying to overturn anything that happened in Northern Ireland, I don't even think you can count your finger. How many police officers have ever been charged? Jerry Kelly shares his story with me. Jerry, although it wasn't expected, all four of you were released on bail pending your trial. What was the terms of that? I had to be home at 10 every night and had to sign the barracks twice a day. I remember I was working, I used to sign in the morning, I used to sign in the evening. And we never, we were always home at 10. We'd, we'd done everything. But we were allowed to cross the border. They always, we went to Bunkran on Sunday for a drink because we, you know, it was working and we used to go down after me and Jerry and Mickey. And so always, how long could you be with them for the trial? We were out in Bay for about 18 months, right. I think, and it was like going on. And of course, the end of the trial starts and we got the first day of the trial. Um, and we go and the first witness was a, what do you call him, forensic pathologist and he was just up saying about the poor Stephen was shot through the heart and blah, blah, blah. And that was their witnesses as such. There was no witnesses. There was no forensic, there was no DNA anyway back then, but there was no nothing. All they, they had, the, the science statement was enough to put you away back then. Simple as that. You signed a piece of paper blank and they filled it in. That's the way it was and it's... Sure, if you go back and check, and I'm not lying to you, that's the way it is. Thank God it's all changed yeah. now. But uh, so we went down for lunch at uh, recess, and I said, Well, that's it. We've probably been here for about eight weeks or nine weeks. So we go back up the stairs next thing. Um, I can hear what's all going on here. She says, I've been sure you can go home. So we thought, No, no, no. And then we find out then nobody's ever been allowed home to start from a murder charge. We're going to start your run. So let's go home that night. And, hold and behold, we turn up the next day. They must have thought these boys are run. Because they must have thought we were going to run in 18 months. Because we, we were adamant we were going nowhere. We were going to trial. We'd, we were that naive still. We still believed. So the next day, and we go, after about an hour, the German, taken out. My barrister was Desmond Bowl. I don't know if you, Desmond Bowl. I've heard of him, yeah. He started, Bull, the, yeah. he started the DUP. A big friend of Ian Paisley. He started yeah. the DUP with Ian Paisley. Right. So that's the sort of people we were using rather than using any Sinn Féin, IRA, whatever they call it, that uh, team. R- Republican-oriented. Yes, uh, you know, and for want of a better word, I shouldn't say IRA, Sinn Féin, because that's fucking power. People use that, the target right there. <laughs> and, uh, so that's the way we went. That was fine. So taking them to a room and God love me father and we Jerry McGowan's father, we Jerry. Yeah. And we're sitting in Paul's there and our junior barrister who was says, right, they'll do a deal. And what do you mean they'll do a deal? He says, they'll drop the murder charge, we plead guilty and they kept us, you'll do eight years, Earl. And I said, they're going to drop a murder 
you know, whatever. And I remember sitting there going, Jimmy, I looked at Jimmy, and both of us said it at the same time. I said, we're not pleading anything, we didn't do it. And his words was, well, you're going down for life. I said, what do you mean? The trial hasn't even started. And his words were, he says, you signed a statement. This is my own barrister. I remember, I watched my father and Jerry McGowan, they were crying. Not that I probably was trying to hold back myself. But they were crying and, going, and he was going, well, that's the way it is. And then he said, and I'll say it, and I said it. The, the day when we were acquitted, we had to go straight from the high court and the police station. They say why we jumped bail on a charge we'd just been acquitted of. And I said to the... Um, well, well, he said, what, yeah, yeah. His words were, I said, the police officer's interviewing. I said, about Desmond Ball. I said, and he, he told us, why did you jump in? I said, because Desmond Ball told us to get out of A&E. And Patricia Coyle was our solicitor, Brendan Patricia, Hard Coyle Collins. She says, kicking me in. I said, no, Patricia, there's cameras here. There's audio here. I'm saying what I want to say now. I'm not the child anymore. I'm not afraid of these people. And so, no, he'll take you off for slander. Or take you I said, he can take me off for whatever he wants. I haven't got any. <laughs> so, yeah. And I said, so he said it. That was his words. Get out of A&I. And Jerry McGowan will sit there and he'll tell you the same thing. And that one of them, we're not lying. And they call, judge me. When the day of reckoning comes. And we get up and we went outside. And we sat in the foyer. And the, uh, the court was a massive, big area. It's very... It's a very daunting place when you think back now. And I could watch, I was watching the special minds running about these individuals who tortured us. That was fine. So, off we go, anyway. My dad back down the car. And actually, I'll jump back. See, this is what happened. Sometimes you remember, like, I was talking to you about Brian Desmond there. Yes. The day we got bail, Brian Desmond was sitting outside the court the day we got bail and came out, and a chauffeur driven, a chauffeur was there. And they drove me and Jeremy Gowan and me father and Jeremy back to Derry. Again, why would a man of that influence have anything to do with somebody if they thought they were? Yeah. You know, and he was there and, you know, it was unbelievable that somebody like that. So off we go, anyway, and we go home. And my father was in the kitchen and says to me, Mother, we have to go. Oh, she went ballistic. Is that right? I think, I can look back at him, I do, I think my dad had a, which I'd never seen in my life. I'd love to hand there to get her. Oh, go and see the bishop, go and see the bishop. She was shouting, the bishop did it. So me and Jeremy got down with the broke house and we saw Bishop Daly and we're chatting, of course, Bishop Daly knew the score and he said, look, you know, he says, I can't put words in your mouth or I'll be, you know, basically, he said as much, go, because you're, you know, and maybe try and, try and sort it out when you're away, like, but I mean, that, so back up, I was telling me mother that, and I was still, she was, so I left that night. For the benefit of the listener that wouldn't know, Derry was right on the border to the Republic of Ireland, and the Craig and Estate, where, where you lived and where I lived, Jerry, backed right on to the Donegal border. So that night, you made the decision to basically go on the run and flee into the Republic of Ireland. It must have been nerve-wracking. Dad drove me up the back roads and I crossed over and went to the Black Hut as you were a kid. I'm sure you probably went to the Black Hut. Yes, I remember the back of Craig. That's the way I walked and my father went down, drove down through Calais and next to the corner. He came back round the end into the south and he picked me up. But the crazy thing about it all, which was normal, I think I was walking and I seen this blue light coming towards me. But I knew it was over the border at that stage because I'd walked it often enough to go to the Black Hut as kids. There was a guard and they stopped and said, have you found them cattle? 
And I went, no, I just had a, he says, ah, your dad's down there. We, we stopped him. He said, Kettle wandered and you're out looking for him and he's coming this way. <laughs> that's, right. that's a true story of the day I dropped dead. And it was your daddy says that to them? Aye. That was quick thinking. Aye, exactly. Because I'd have, I'd have panicked. If they hadn't said, the fact that they said to me, did you find them cattle? Then I got, because when I seen them come, I said, they know, you know, <laughs> they know. <laughs> they had the notion. So then that was that, and we moved on. We ended up then going to uh, Tom O'Cara, God love him. Tom was a priest in Moville. Yes. And we stayed with Tom for a couple of days. He put us up, and Tom and Mary was housekeeper. And then we ended up going to McConlock House. I'm sure you know McConlock. I know it. I was then down out to Moville there and as well. We were there for about two weeks, petrified. We were like four scared kids. We wouldn't sleep up. So did you all leave together? Yeah, but all, but all separately in different ways. Because he's made a plan that... No, well, I... Jerry... I don't know how Stephen went with Stephen. I know Jerry and Mickey went together, but they went down the... Um, Bridge End, down by... What do you call that pub? Used to have the thatch on it. We're down by... Um, Link 40-something now, is it? Or no, no, no it? I know the place you're talking about. Aye, they it went used up, to be... Uh, Coyce Quinn. Aye, there. that's it. They went up the back of Coyce Quinn, and they ran across the field down on the Bridge the End. The Three Flowers. The Three Flowers. They crossed the road... They went through fields and he tells the story and he made a we made a documentary on BBC One running scared. You didn't you didn't listen to it or I was gonna say you didn't no, see it. I'm sorry, I, I keep see saying it. Oh no, don't worry about that. I would say see him myself, so you're okay. Ah, uh, running scared it's called. It. I must B- watch B- it. BBC it's not BBC Northern Ireland, it's BBC England. We could sit here for hours and hours and I could tell you some of the mad stuff that someone carry on with criminal prison and how the prison officers were good deals. They were good deals. You know, when can, people can look back and Prison officers were murdered. We were in there, they were murdered. Um, but no, we they were always, you know, and that was also came through the provost and through the the higher regime in there because they ran the prison. They, they, yeah. they, they ran. I'm sure the UDA and UVF ran their, their you know, wings. Because uh, I mean, I used to, used to sit and used to lie at night and be awake and you'd hear that they used to wear, um, what we call them slippers growing up as kids. You know, they hadn't got their boots on them. And then the next thing you'd hear, Prison officer could be called Andy or whatever, or Sammy. Here, Sammy, how's we Joan, Joan doing? Is Mary picking him up in the morning, taking him to school, or they still getting that same bus? He changing that carriot, you know, and torturing them. Yeah. Knowing that they knew their Stop families and everything yeah. about them, yeah. you know, and that must have been that must have been torture, you know. But you know, when I look back, I remember talking to down to visits with me dad, talking to prison, young a young prison officer, he used to walk us down. And he, he says, we know the crack about Jews, boys. It's, you know, madness, he says. And uh, I said, why did you join this? Why, why, why would you join this? He says, the money's great. <laughs> <laughs> they were getting so, fantastic money back the then. Because yeah. mm-hmm. they were probably no different to Catholic boys. They probably had no work, and that was a job to them. It's a job yeah. a Catholic wouldn't have done, or, you know. Yeah. Well, maybe more so out of fear. So you, come back to when you, you, you went on the run, so you got picked up over the border. I got picked up and we ended up then going to Tom, Tom O'Garros in Moville. I don't know, obviously, the bishop must have been in touch with him or something. I don't know. Tom didn't live in the Procol House. He, he always lived behind High McNamara's hotel. You know, I think Tom was a bit of a rebel. You know, well, he, he was a bit of a rebel. He was a lovely man. He was a beautiful man. I had, to, I had more respect for that. When I heard he died, we were in Dublin, I was heartbroken. Yeah. Um, and then you stayed in McConnell House for we a few weeks. stayed in McConnell House for a few weeks. That was... Oh, I was petrified in there. Four of us lay at the fire. We wouldn't go upstairs. 
And then when it was your turn to go and get the turf, you were, you know, <laughs> the turf was out in the shed. And we say, go here, where we are four murderers and <laughs> we're down here and we won't go and get turf. Petrified. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I'm sitting there laughing, but you have to because that's the way it was. And then I remember then, one day my father coming down here going to Dublin, he might as well say he's sending me to the Timbuktu. Because that was just, I said, I'm going to go to, what am I going to do down there? No, what do we know? What do we, it was just pure fear. Mm. You know, he could have might as well said, send you to New York or, so be it. Anyway, because he says, you're not hanging around up here. You're not, you're going to have to go and make a life and we'll fight. Fight and fight until little did I know how long the fight would take and he wouldn't see the end of it. But so and behold, he, he got as a, a fellow called Marky McElhenney, who was the son of the crowd that my father worked for in Derry. He was living down there. But he had a girlfriend, they were living in a wee flat. And that girl put me and Jerry McGowan up. She was from down the country, Ross Commons. She didn't know nothing about the troubles in the north. The mad thing about it was, see, Dublin and the south of Ireland, even down there, nobody had a clue what was going on up here. Maybe Donegal people, but because obviously Dublin people and people down south, they just didn't get it. Even this was 82, they just, you know, we were a different world. I, I used to find it amazing. And that's why it was so easy for me to disappear and hide. And, and I said it to, uh, I said it to psychiatrists numerous times we were talking, and even recently when we're getting counseling and things aren't good. You know, this young fellow left there, his name was Jerry Kelly, he died. And this new Jerry Kelly was born. He came from the Phoenix Ashes. That's a no word. Because this fellow who lived in Dublin for the 20 years before we were acquitted was not the Jerry Kelly. He was, nobody knew him. Nobody knew I made a whole new life. Never told anything about, you know. Oh, right, yeah. You were loving us. Ah, even my closest. Secret life, Even really? my closest friend. Even some, I mean, some people really, really got, my boss really got angry with me. If this is a fella who gave me my break in life. I really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here today. We only for him and, Work-wise, for a start, and how I, I made a career, and it was, it was through his generosity and his, you know. But I mean, he, he found out. He found out the morning after it was on a late late show on a Sunday morning. It was in the shop working, and he came down, and he was. I heard him coming because he drove a Ferrari. He, he knew the engine. And I knew. I said, "He's going up," and he just walked to the shop. He said, "Why can you tell me?" Looked at me in the eyes, and I says, "How do you tell somebody something like that?" I said, nobody down here believe you. If you had a naughty accent in 82 in Dublin, you were a provo. <laughs> Simple as. And you see the trial, the trial obviously went ahead in your absence then. Or was it just a sentence happened? I, I never really, it was something that I never really ever thought much about. And Patricia Coy would have to tell you more of that, you know. So once the, you went on the run, you sort of disagreed with the whole thing? I just, I, I, as I said, that young fellow, that Jerry Kelly died, he he didn't exist. He's, he was gone. So you went to Dublin then and that was you. Is that, is that where you spent your whole life in Dublin? Spent 20, 24 years. 24 Grew years. up and I, I, say, I say that, you know, we had no young life because... When this happened at 17 or 18, and it's only when I look at my own children when I was taking them to discos and I think back of my father, you know, and he was still fighting when we were away. He was still running after John Hume and Jerry McGowan's father were running down to John Town and they lived in Westland. And 
I mean, John Hume was doing his best. I mean, we were getting letters from Amnesty International, from Civil Rights Watch, or whatever, you name it. We, they were all involved, and they were all, you know, everybody was there behind us, and they knew, but trying to, trying to overturn anything that happened in Northern Ireland, they're trying to call, I mean, you could, I don't even think you could count your finger. How many police officers have ever been charged with doing well, anything? To be honest with you, Jerry, like when I, as you know, you, you've listened to some of the Sonny Jacobs uh, podcast that I've done, and there's a woman in America, 17 years in death row before they discovered she was, before she got the chance to prove she was innocent. Yeah. And her partner was arrested with her, was actually executed. He was executed after 15 years right. in prison, and both of them were totally and utterly innocent. So it is a very hard thing to prove your innocence, which is something I struggle to understand myself, like why it t- takes so long to... Because I think it's because it's a fear of, you know, the British, there's no doubt that they knew, after, I'd say after a week or two when we were in prison, they knew they were in trouble, they were going, oh, no, no, there's too many good people behind these boys, these aren't going to lie down, you know, and mm. but if they had... A, it's like when we were... It's still talked about. Well, we were years. tortured. We put a complaint on straight away to the RUC. And we have the letter back. This was 1983. We investigated, we investigated themselves. Mm. You know, because years after, they were trying to say, well, why did we not, why did we not put on a complaint? But they'd, they'd obviously been that complacent. They didn't realise we had. And then, you know, that's when the police always man said to us, we said, we had to go into the attics in the Strand Road. They wouldn't give us anything. They told us everything was lost and burnt or destroyed. And then they found all these... They found the original statements, yeah. and that's when we had two uh, lingui- linguists, ling- linguists, linguists. Yeah. They talked to them, and they said these were written. One person wrote these statements. These people didn't talk like this. Then they they came back and said no, they wanted an R. So an R fellow had he he came back with the same thing. You know, they were saying we all spoke the same and done, wrote everything the same way. <laughs> Everybody's different, of course. You yeah, know of mean? course. But little, all them little things, you know, and. As I say, when you find out, then we find out so much. Then we got the stuff off MI5 or British intelligence stuff that you had to fight for. A lot of it was rectified, but a lot of it was, you know, you could see a lot of the stuff. And then they knew, and they they, they knew even. Um, a, a prime thing about the whole thing was here was I was working for a a contract cleaning company, big contract cleaning company. We used to clean all of our penny, in Dublin, yeah, penny stores in Dublin, and. Yeah. Uh, Quinsworth, Quinsworth are gone now, Tesco's bought them. And, but I was in uh, Mary Street, that's a headquarters, and a fellow called Arthur Guinness, he's head of, he's head of uh, Primark stores. Well, great friends with Don Tidy. And Don Tidy had been kidnapped the year before. And the IRA kidnapped Don Tidy. And so I was working there, and I used, to t- I used to be up having tea with this man when the staff were working at night, and I didn't know he was going to come. He was always a nice man and well to do. And I had to get security clearance to go there, off the Gardaí. And I got security clearance. I got all this, no bar. And for numerous other things, I got security clearance. Now, you ask yourself, how would I get security clearance if they had any fear? Right. That, but hold and behold then, unknown to me, I got security clearance. But then when we got acquitted, the police officer man and uh Patricia Coyle, um, the Irish intelligence were involved as well. The Irish Army intelligence were involved as well as the Garda headquarters. And this letter appears, Patricia Coyle brought me. The Garda Sakana had informed 
there you see where I was living in Sandyford in Dublin four weeks after they'd given me security clearance and I later came back from uh, RUC uh, we have no interest in this man <laughs> well, when was that letter David? that was uh, 10 years before we were quitted 30 years ago right. man it's bad it's crazy crazy stuff coming up in the next episode of course you can't stop thinking about it but you can't let it you can't let it destroy you anymore. I go to bed every night, and a lot of people might slag me off for saying it. Now, I pray to Stephen Kirby. Stephen's a soldier was shot. My thanks to everybody that helped with this podcast. Firstly, the What About You broadcast team, Ursula Murr and Enya Murr, thanks very much for all your help. I want to thank Paul O'Connor from the Pat Finucan Centre in Derry. Paul does incredible work and I'm very grateful for all your help, Paul. A big thank you to Jerry Kelly himself. Jerry, I appreciate the time you give me. I appreciate your honesty and openness. Finally, I would like to thank all of you who have taken the time out to listen to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it.